So how and where we imagine God inevitably and fundamentally shapes how we imagine what's possible for our world, right? The goal of our work together, what it means to be human, to be church, to build a community, not only here, but a society. And a question that we've been exploring the last couple of weeks is can we find God beyond just God the Father, beyond even gendered language or the gender binary altogether? Can we allow God's presence to speak to us from unexpected faces or places? Where is God and who reflects the image of God? That's what we've been circling around. And so it's fitting, I think, to begin with our brief passage from Ephesians and the insistence that our faith makes on how in Christ and through the cross, God sought to overcome, to put to death the hostilities that are killing us in order to create the possibility for a new humanity, a vision for new human community. Whereas in the triune God, a community where diversity and differences and multiplicity are honored, making way for a deeper, truer unity to emerge. Now, Ephesians does not give us an sort of agree-to-disagree surface-level vision of toleration. That's not what we're after here. It's a vision and a call to something much more profound, much, much more difficult, much more world-altering. And as nice, nice as this might sound, it was no easier or less controversial for the early church to, to try to live into it than it is for us, as this morning's reading from the book of Acts makes clear. Here we have one of many such defining stories from the book of Acts as, as the early church known not yet as Christians, not yet as a noun, but a verb, as followers of the way, of the way of Jesus, as they struggle to figure out what does it look like to live into that way as God's Spirit continues to break down barriers, as Ephesians says, break down those hostilities that divide us from one another. Now, as Acts describes it, one day nothing less than an angel of the Lord appeared to Philip prompts him to go down the road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so Philip faithfully gets up and goes, Acts says, not entirely sure of what the goal of his journey is, just just that there is an urge for him to go, and so he does. And Acts tells us as he makes that journey, he comes across an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the queen of the Ethiopians in charge of her entire treasury. Now, the Ethiopian eunuch, whose whose name in African tradition is Kinakis, had come to Jerusalem to worship and was now returning home. And seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, Isaiah says. Like a lamb, silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. At the Spirit's prompting, Philip feels this urge to to go over to the chariot and join it. 
And as he arrives, he asks Kinakis, I heard you reading from the prophet Isaiah. Do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he says, Kinakis says, unless someone guides me. And so Kinakis invites Philip into the chariot to discuss the meaning of this scripture. And along they ride, Philip sharing the good news embodied and revealed in Jesus until they come upon some water there in the desert. A little, it's a little miracle itself, right? When Kinakis exclaims, look, water, what, what is to prevent me? Is there anything to prevent me from being baptized? Absolutely not, Acts emphasizes. Kinakis, you are God's beloved child. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's a nice little story of inclusion, right? Seems fairly simple, straightforward. What, what you might be wondering is so controversial about this story? Well, as Acts repeatedly emphasizes... The person whom Philip encounters is a eunuch and is from Ethiopia. Now, someone who was born a eunuch in the first century Jewish tradition, as Jesus refers to in Matthew 19, was either one who had not developed sexually by the age of 20, or one who had been born with both male and female sex characteristics, who may have had ambiguous genitalia. It was sort of an umbrella term, similar to the umbrella term that we use today of intersex, right? This is the the I, for those of you keeping track, this is the I and LGBTQIA. In previous generations, uh, such people were oftentimes referred to as hermaphrodites after the name of a Greek god, and some of you may have heard that before. I lift that up because that is not a term that is used anymore, and so if you're familiar with it, I just... Uh, invite you not to use that. It's not, namely because it's not accurate uh, to, to actual reality. Recent studies estimate that nearly 2% of the global population are born intersex. That's about the same number as redheads, in case you're wondering. Think about that. That's, that's the population we're dealing with. In Jesus' world, though, you would add to that number those who, as he alludes to, were made such, made eunuchs, that is, either boys who had been castrated before puberty, or a male slave, typically from a conquered tribe who had been castrated. Either way, they were, they were oftentimes made so in order to serve in royal courts, as this morning's person does, as Kinakis does, because with them there, having been castrated, rulers don't have to worry about sexual promiscuity and and. Uh, uh, producing a child who might become a challenge to their throne, right? Now, one result of all this was that their testosterone levels were low, which, which meant that they did not conform physically to male gender norms. In a variety of ways, eunuchs in the ancient world transcended our sex and gender binaries being neither male nor female in our traditional understanding of these terms. As Acts makes clear, Kinakis, the the eunuch, had come from Ethiopia to worship in Jerusalem in the temple and was now making their way home. 
what our scripture doesn't explicitly say, but which would have been implicitly obvious to those first hearers of the book of Acts, is that while Kinakis went to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, they would not have actually been allowed in to do so. Because you see, scripture makes it painfully clear that eunuchs were seen as an abomination whose very presence would pollute God's holy sanctuary. As Deuteronomy 23.1 puts it, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. Yes, scripture says testicles and penis, in case you didn't know, and many other things. It's pretty clear, right? doesn't get any clearer than that. Or is it? Perhaps Kinakis knew of these restrictions in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus, but, but as Acts portrays it, they also clearly know the prophetic poetry of Isaiah, whom Jesus quotes more than any other scripture himself, articulating his own mission and purpose. Now, just a couple of chapters after the passage that Kinakis is reading when Philip encounters him, Isaiah declares this. Do not let the foreigner joined to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me. And do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree, unable to bear fruit. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give to you in my house and within my walls a monument and a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give you an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Now, perhaps Kinakis, as both a foreigner and a eunuch, was hoping against hope that this bold vision of God's boundary-breaking love and extravagant embrace would rule the day when, when they arrived at God's house of prayer in Jerusalem. But alas, they would be rejected from even entering, not to mention from actually belonging to the community, to the people of God. And so on that long ride back home, in their chariot, Philip encountered a heartbroken child of God. Nursing, I'm sure, the wounds of rejection, of, of grief and anger, of, of confusion and frustration. In the midst of all that, Kanakis is meditating on Isaiah 53, a passage about one who was like a sheep led to the slaughter. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. And as Philip joins Kinakis, they ask Philip, who is the prophet speaking about, himself or someone else? Now, as the great professor of preaching Thomas Long notes, at this point in the conversation, Kinakis almost surely means, is this only about Isaiah and his situation, or, or is this passage about me, too? 
Right? Is scripture merely God's word about something that happened long, long ago to someone else? Or is scripture God's word for me today? For I too feel like a sheep who has been led to the slaughter. As a eunuch and as a slave, I am all too familiar with humiliation and justice denied. Is God speaking to me? To my experience? Of being an outcast? As Philip opens the scriptures to Kinakis that day, he, he describes, no doubt, something even more profound, even more life changing than Kinakis ever could have imagined. Not only does God know and understand Kinakis' experience of being humiliated and being denied justice, of being rejected by religious leaders and barred from God's sanctuary. In Jesus, God took on that same lowly, rejected, and outcast state. The God who spoke through Isaiah and acted through Jesus wholeheartedly embraces you, Kinakis, even when the so-called people of God don't. Refracted through the story of Jesus, Kinakis' own story of shame and humiliation becomes one of redemption, of restoration, of hope. So too, Philip and the early church as a whole were changed by such encounters as God's Spirit called them to cross boundaries, to keep crossing barriers that they could not have imagined or created on their own. But with the Spirit's prompting, even the impossible became possible. In Christ, God will break even the rules of Scripture itself to get people in, Acts is saying. God will break the rules of even Scripture itself to build a community of love and dignity and belonging wherever prejudice has dehumanized and hostility has excluded. Notice that God doesn't tell Philip to to heal Kinakis, to to fix them. Philip doesn't try to, to make him more whole, as if that would make him therefore able to belong, to be made more of a, a man, a real man, to have to fit back within that gender or sex binary. As God says through Isaiah, to you I will give an everlasting name that can never be cut off. Do you get it? Do you get it yet? Acts is asking us. Now as then, God's sanctuary shall be a house of prayer for all people. Capital A, capital L, capital L, bolded and underlined all. That means all. Is it clear yet? Issues like those Philip faced that day so long ago of of welcoming and honoring a eunuch, a sexual minority, a, a foreigner, like the ones we continue to face today as as religious and political leaders are creating laws to erase and marginalize LGBTQIA people, 
Issues like these are more than a matter of agreeing to disagree. Nor are we called to merely tolerate the existence of others. That is not the bold and radical vision that that Ephesians, that our scriptures call us to. Kinakis and their siblings today are to be welcomed in all their fullness, are to be celebrated in all their fullness, are to be honored in all their fullness, just as any one of us is. No barriers of hostility. This is what it looks like to believe in, to give ourselves to the way of Jesus, to the God who is always drawing forth goodness and life from places of chaos and death. And yet all too often our churches are filled with Christians, sort of a noun, a verb, uh, those who have membership status, who refuse to actually follow the way of Jesus, when and where it challenges our prejudices. And, and I, to be clear, this is no easier for me than it is for any of you. I know this struggle all, all too well, all too intimately. I've, I've been there, and it will be a lifelong journey for me, just as it is for each of us. All too often, we, we settle for the easy answers for, for mere toleration, far short of the true belonging of the vision of Ephesians. We don't want to upset those longtime members, the big pledgers. And so at best, we allow the kinakis of our world to maybe exist. Just don't be too visible. Don't remind us of who you are. But Philip and those early followers of the way were those willing to reinterpret everything they thought they knew, reinterpret what they had received, the tradition they had received, in light of that which was being revealed to them by the boundary-breaking Spirit of God. That's the good news That's the lifelong challenge. What of you? What of us? Will we keep seeking after this God? I pray that this same spirit would grant us the courage of Philip to truly embrace the way of Jesus here at Federated Church. May it be for our joy and hope and healing for the joy and hope and healing of all the world. Amen.